Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 196. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are joined by our friend Pat Gessner. Pat, welcome back onto the show. Thank you guys for having me. It's good to be back. Back for the We've... fourth time. Pat is our most returning guest on Monorail Radio, and you will better know him as the voice of our intro, our great movie ride intro. And I think since the last time you were on, I think we can officially say Pat Gessner of TikTok fame. Oh, let's go into that, shall we? Yeah. Can I, we? Because yeah, I just... <laughs> it's a brilliant concept. It really is. And and you really do such a great job putting your band pitch videos together. I stole it wholesale from the guys who do movie pitches on Screen Rant. But it's, you know, TikTok is all about stealing stuff and making it your own anyway. So I was like, you know what, I'll do that. Uh, it's got a huge following and people are like now copying it and doing their own and getting really angry crazy. when got... other people copy it, thinking that yeah. they're ripping you off. What the hell is that about? That's new. That's that's a new sensation for me. But it's it's just been really fun to, you know, just kind of do some fun stuff on a random uh, platform that I've never had anything to do with before and then just immediately see success in it. So I was I'm always happy to you know, put out more stuff like that. I should probably record another one of those when we're done now that I think about it. But, you know, it's it's good stuff. It's fun. You should do the Rescuers Down Under movie pitch. Oh, we'll get into some things I would have pitched. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we are doing, of course, the Rescuers Down Under as a follow-up to the Rescuers, which we uh, reviewed last week. And when we had Pat on for Monoreal Radio the first time when we did God Help Us the Black Cauldron, we had <laughs> said to you then... We obviously want to have you back, and you know we want it to be a movie that you pick. And without hesitation, you said The Rescuers Down Under. What is it about The Rescuers Down Under that has sat with you and stuck with you for this long? Like a lot of kids my age, I got into Disney not through the uh, you know constantly going to the movie theater and constantly doing this, but just from the collection of VHS tapes that I had. And I just remember very clearly Rescuers Down Under was probably the one that I played the most. And I don't know whether it was because my parents liked it more than others and they would put it on more often, or if I just really chose to watch it over and over again. But I just remember that movie specifically being one of the first ones I would reach for and just being completely entranced by it every time. That's so interesting because if you think of the time period that this came out, this was 1990. So you had Little Mermaid, you had the success of that. Uh, and then this was right before Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. So like of all things that you could have picked that like got you hooked into Disney, this was it. And I, I think that's one of the things that we are going to talk about today is how this does sort of seem to get forgotten amongst those other Renaissance films. But this one is kind of different because it's a sequel. But this was the first major theatrical release that they did with a sequel film. Right, because most of them... Most of them didn't get sequels, and the ones that came after typically were direct-to-video releases. Like The Second Little Mermaid and Return of Jafar. Um, yeah, but they made a huge deal out of this one, and I think it's also because they were sort of flexing with the technology that they had, which we're going to get into. Right. So we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to answer a lot of questions, including, for Pat at least, who grew up with this film— 
Do you still love it the same, and does the film still hold up that on top of many other things is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date on all the new releases. In the Australian outback, a young animal lover named Cody rescues Marahute, a golden eagle from a poacher's trap, and befriends the animal who shows him her nest with her eggs. After attempting to rescue a mouse being used as bait, Cody falls into a trap set by the poacher McLeach, who decides to kidnap Cody after McLeach finds a golden eagle feather in Cody's backpack as he plans to use Cody to find Marahute. The mouse races to find help, and the call is eventually sent to New York, where the Rescue Aid Society track down Bernard and Bianca, inadvertently interrupting Bernard's proposal. Bianca and Bernard go to Albatross Airlines to see that Orville has retired, but his brother Brother Wilbur has taken over, so they set off for Australia. Upon their arrival, they meet Jake, a hopping mouse who is immediately smitten with Bianca. He promises to serve as a tour guide to get them through the dangerous outback and help them find Cody. McLeach, meanwhile, has locked Cody in a cage where he befriends other animals that have been captured by the poacher. Over the radio, we hear that the search for Cody was called off after his backpack was found devoured by crocodiles that was thrown into the water by McLeach earlier on. McLeach decides to tell Cody that Marahute was killed by another poacher, leaving her eggs to be left behind to die, which is of course a lie, but he is trying to play up on the child's emotions. Bernard, Bianca, and Jake, meanwhile, have arrived and climb onto McLeach's vehicle as he follows Cody, who is en route to check on Marahute's eggs. At the nest, Cody meets Bianca, Bernard, and Jake, who warn him that McLeach has followed him just as McLeach captures Marahute. As they pursue Cody, Bianca, and Jake are separated from Bernard, who is left in the nest with the eggs. Wilbur arrives, and Bernard convinces him to stay with the eggs while Bernard goes after Bianca, Jake, Cody, and Marahute. He wrangles a wild boar and sets off to find them. As McLeach prepares to feed Cody to the crocodiles, Bernard arrives and uses Joanna, McLeach's uh, pet Goanna, as a ram that sends McLeach into the crocodile-infested waters and then over a waterfall. Bianca and Jake set Marahute free. Marahute then rescues Bernard and Jake. Bernard proposes to Miss Bianca, and they all go home happy while the eggs hatch under the watchful eye of Wilbur. Short answer, hell yes. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I sincerely love this movie, and I just watched it again recently in preparation for this, and it still holds up. I still love this. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to come out of our plot here because you, I could see, you were like itching to get that out. You couldn't wait to get that out. Um, yeah, so let's discuss why for you it holds up. And and I'll be I'll be honest with you. For me, this was a bit of a rediscovery because this was one of the few Disney VHSs that I didn't own. This was one of the few Disney films that for whatever reason, I'm not going to say it was lost to time, but it just didn't find its way into our rotation. Whether it was picking a film out at the video store or having my grandmother take us to the library and getting a VHS, this tended to get overlooked. 
Yeah, that's definitely what it was for me because my dad took me to see this in the theater. I guess because my mom had taken me to see Little Mermaid, he wanted to do one, uh, and he was all about it because of the setting. Um, but I always kind of felt bad because we never had the VHS and this one definitely got lost to time for me. Um, I think that was part of it too. It's interesting that Pat did have the VHS and revisited so much. I don't ever remember seeing it. That's the thing. And I think that's something that's hard for people today to understand because we have Disney plus at our disposal. There were a lot of films that you would see in the theater. And if you didn't see the VHS or grab it when it first came out, when it was first released, you couldn't necessarily always go back and just get it. And you couldn't always find it even to rent. Well, remember, kids of a certain age, there used to be this thing called the Disney Vault. And that yes. was the Disney's way of they would do a release of a film, a pressing, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, of a film on VHS or on Laserdisc. And then as time went on, it would be DVD and they would make it for a very limited time. And then it would go back into the vault. So once it was gone, you couldn't get it again unless you bought it secondhand or found a video store that had it. I think part of the reason why the rescuers down under, and I'm going to get this out of the way now. I think part of the reason why this movie tends to be forgotten, overlooked, hard to find is because it was a box office bomb. It was a complete box office bomb. And, you know, for example, Oliver and Company was a box office success and didn't get a VHS release for almost 10 years. So when you have a film like The Rescuers Down Under that is a box office bomb, they're not going to put that much money into printing. You know, it's not just the VHS tapes. It's the cassette tape boxes because those boxes were the plastic. They were thick. They were very elaborate. You have to print the the jacket art for it, and that was all very elaborate. And, and those movies, you know, you're talking at the time, some of them were $30, $40 to buy a VHS. They were expensive to produce and expensive to buy, so I don't think Disney was going to put a lot of faith into VHS sales on a film that underperformed at the movie theater. True. They were never really big on, like, you know, I remember when The Black Cauldron was released as a re-release from the Disney vault. They made such a big deal out of it because they gave it time to develop a following. And by the time stuff got into DVD, they really didn't have the 10-year-plus time for Rescuers Down Under to get that following. Also, I'm just going to get this out of the way right now. Uh it is not the movie's fault that it was a box office bomb. Do you know what was released the same weekend as Rescuers Down Under? All Home right. Alone. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say 1990. So I- I'm surprised it wasn't like a Spielberg film that it went up against. No, it, it was released against Home Alone the same weekend. It made about $3 million in the box office. And then all of the advertisements were pulled from TV. Wow. Yeah. Because they decided if it wasn't going to make the money that weekend, it's never going to make that money. Even though like reviews for the movie were incredible, even though people secondhand were like, you got to see this. They pulled all the ads from TV. They pulled everything that would get more viewers into it. It it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that this movie was a bomb. And and Home Alone sat at the top of the box office for it was insane. I think Home Alone sat at the top of the box office for something like 12 straight weeks. It was like mm-hmm. madness 
for the amount of time that a Christmas film that was released in June, mind you, sat at the top of the box office. So this really did have all the odds stacked against it. And it was super expensive to make. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the very beginning of the film. Disney was using the cap system. The the one thing that people don't appreciate this film for is this was the first full-length digital film ever produced in Hollywood. Right, because Mm -hmm. prior to this, the only shots that they were using it for were the really tricky ones in Little Mermaid, like when Ariel runs down the stairs. That would take a year and a day to animate just that sequence. So you can see stylistically it just looks different, but that's why, because it was digital. Everything about the first, well, even just from the opening credits, just the panning scene of the credits going over the fields that lead to Cody's house, that zooming shot alone going through all the atmosphere, that alone was kind of something that blew me away as a kid. And then I... I'm going to go off on a limb here and say with the combination of the animation, the computer with the time frame that it took place in, this was the first 10 minutes of this movie are probably some of the most beautiful animation I've ever seen in my life. It actually really reminded me of the Lion King, but this came several years before it. Like when you see the bug on the leaf, I feel like this was almost the test run and then they perfected it later for Lion King. But this is still absolutely gorgeous. And like you said, that special effect shot where it's going through the field, it is just so impressive. That was there was a pole focus. There was a pole focus (laughs) on animated bugs. There totally was. Um, And and that was when. We sat down to watch it for the first time. I was kind of like, oh, wow, I forgot all about this. And then I remembered that like that was the huge draw for this film was these special effects shots and the depth that they were able to create with the cap system. How funny is it now all of these years later? And I'm not just talking about years between the release and production of these two films, but in the years that we've been doing monoreal radio and Pat was on for Black Cauldron. And they had just started using the cap system then. And some of that animation looks horrible. Now, it's not their fault because it's their first time out. To see where they've come in only about five years that we we're in the uh, we haven't even had a spoken word in this film and we're talking about how mind-blowing and breathtaking the animation is to see and this is just how Disney does it right to see what they accomplished in such a short period of time is nothing short of amazing well i guess there was something good to come out of black cauldron then is that they really learned from their mistakes There was a lot of good to come out of that movie, but I don't think it's a lot of the things that people talk about. (laughs) I still, to this day, and then we will get off of Black Cauldron and start talking about the film that we're actually here to talk about, I will die on the hill that the Skull King is the most underappreciated and one of the best villains in the history of a Disney film. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that, because when we talk about the characters, I got some stuff to say about McLeach, so... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hold, hold, we'll put a pin in that. All right. Please. uh, Yeah, if we're talking about underrated villains, mm, I don't know that Skull King is the most. I'm okay. So we're definitely going to put a pin in that because I I have a note that I think is probably going to end this show very quickly because I don't think you guys are going to want to talk to me after. 
after. Okay, let's just. I'm. I, I just. That's your teaser. Let's just go. So all right. We, so we have we have this outstanding opening in the Australian outback, and then we get introduced to American Cody living in Australia. <laughs> um, but I really. He's not Australian. He's not American. He says mate every now and then. Every now and again. <laughs> yeah. I, l- I think he, he the, the conversation he had with his mom is the only time I caught him having an accent. I love the introduction to this character. I love the fact that he's got to sneak out of the house. Obviously, he this is nothing new for him. He causes trouble. He scrapes his knees. He acts like a little kid growing up in the Australian outback, and he already pre-packed his sandwiches, and he's going out for the day, and his mother's just like, okay, yeah, go ahead in the outback, just be back for dinner, don't get killed. And what he does is he communicates <laughs> with animals, and immediately his whole thing is who's in trouble, who can we save, because he's trying to protect the ecosystem and protect the animals that he lives amongst from the poachers. So he kind of has this Mowgli quality to him that I think is absolutely outstanding. And I think that they waste no time in developing that character. They also develop something kind of interesting, which is this whole opening scene where you have Cody and you have all the animals communicating with each other and you have all of the different ways in which like the environment is being used for this. It develops this crazy world of the rescuers that if you haven't seen the original you are thrown full force into because the the first movie kind of scrapes on this but this movie really embraces just like how unusual this worldview is because this is a world where uh it's not unusual for humans and animals to talk but only if they're kids right like kids can talk to animals and this has been the case for the, the original rescuers and it's the case for every instance of this now where Cody can talk to every single animal he comes across and the rescuers can communicate with with kids but they can't talk to adults see that's the only thing that i was sort of bumping on in this opening sequence aside from the accent which didn't bother me when i was a kid but now it stood out like a sore thumb it really um, sticks out it really does I love what you said about Mowgli. That was something that I hadn't even considered. And I do really love that quality about Cody. But what bothers me is that he's talking to every single other animal. And I'm sure part of that was just because they did the film in Australia. And we know they did their classic Disney research trip where they spent two years studying these animals. So, of course, you have to pepper them in. But I wish that they had introduced the mice first and showed us how the Rescue Aid Society applies in Australia before we are introduced to this other network of animals, sort of like how they did in the first one. We get to know the Rescue Aid Society and Bernard and Bianca way before we meet the other hillbillies. So I kind of wish that they had laid a little bit more of the groundwork before we get in with the kangaroos and the platypus and all that kind of stuff. And it's a pretty amazing scene, the way it's animated, when he rescues uh, Marahute and he cuts her free. And that that entire scene, when he's flying on her wings and she's, you know helping him kind of water ski and it's just it's such a way of disney to show off this new technology and kind of throw it out there you know because don bluth and spielberg after an american tale like they were a force to be reckoned with in animation 
but as talented as they were, and as good as those movies are, because An American Tale, All Dogs Go to Heaven, these are great films. This is Disney flexing and saying, you got that, you don't have this. This scene is one of the most beautifully animated scenes, I think, in terms of hand-drawn animation that they digitized. I think it still holds up. I agree. And and I think people are sleeping on this one. It's 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 one of the things that first immediately got my attention as a kid, just watching the scene where he's flying with the eagle. Just the the, the there's so many little shots in this that it took so much planning and you know sequencing to get everything exactly right where they were like okay first he's going to be falling and get caught then he's going to fly on his back for a while then dive down and go onto the water there are different sequences in all of this and all of them look incredible they really do and it's not just the the incredible landscapes that they created it's the detail of the eagle there's that one shot where uh Cody looks down and you catch the reflection of Cody in its eye. It's it's incredible. This movie, the way that it's animated, in scenes like that especially, they feel different. Yes. Like uh, up until this point, even with stuff like Little Mermaid, you got the sense that they were all drawing from the same guidebook. And it's especially like when I think about the original Rescuers, it's hard for me to de- de- determine like, okay, what scenes were from that and what scenes were from the Aristocats and what scenes were from Oliver and company. Cause it all seemed like it had the same cell shading. It all had the same outlining. It all had the same design. The characters could be swapped back and forth. This had distinct, unique animation. It's that very really made it incredible. It's very funny you bring that up because the amount of recycled animation that is in The Rescuers, we caught it as we were watching and we picked out so many frames that they recycled. Like uh, when Medusa's on the um, on her Little swamp, swamp jet, yeah. uh, that's, well, not, not that when she's driving, I'm sorry. Oh, when yes, she's driving, yes, yes. it's all 101 Dalmatians. It's Cruella driving. Um, right. We talked about how Bambi is straight up placed in Rescuers, which was shocking to see. Uh, but there were no repeats in this one. So I was really happy about that. There's one repeat. Is there really? There is a repeat. I didn't even catch it. There's a repeat that unless you watched this film a lot as a kid, which I did, you're not going to pick up on it. And And the reason why I know this is because as a kid... My brother and I, one of our favorite films, and I've told the story before, one of our favorite films to watch was Sleepy Hollow. Not, But it was not from the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. It was when they separated those films and sold them as two different movies, and it was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. There is a scene, and I'm not sure why they recycled the animation because they were using the cap system. In the scene where... Bernard loses the ring mm-hmm. and it goes under the table and that the female mouse, it hooks on her toe mm-hmm. and he reaches for it and she shoots a glare at the fellow sitting next to her because he thinks she thinks he's playing footsie with her and he kind of grins and he dabbles off his mouth with the napkin and he kind of smiles at her and he gets slapped. That is straight 
Ichabod Crane. That is recycled animation from the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. But if you haven't seen that Sleepy Hollow, I've seen it hundreds of times. It's totally going to be lost on you. No kidding. Well, it was lost on me. I stand corrected. I've only seen that movie once, and I did not catch that. We will... I. I will have to maybe like find a screen grab or something to put up on social media, but I will like I'll I'll find the film on Disney Plus and like Pat, I will definitely let you know what the time code is. You could go back and watch it. it is the it is recycled animation. And and I honestly I was it was astonishing to see. Be like to your point, because you don't think there's gonna be recycled animation here, but because of the cap system, you really don't expect it that they're gonna do something unique. It's if you if you don't see it a lot, if you haven't watched the movie, like I said, it's over your head. It doesn't bother you. It as soon as I saw it when we rewatched it the other day, I went, "Oh my god, how is there more recycled animation in this?" But it's the only one, at least the only one that I found. So, but to stick with some other traditions other than recycling animation, Disney be killing parents because <laughs> when Marote <laughs> takes. Uh, Cody back to the nest and we see the eggs for the first time he says where's the daddy eagle and she kind of just frowns and she said and he's like yeah my dad's gone too and that was a bonding moment with the two of them Um, so Disney kills parents again because you can't have both of them you did right Um, I I wrote that in my notes I wrote like even this Disney movie hates parents and (laughs) (laughs) but they do it really incredible they they do it like sort of tastefully right because it the, again, this film, the amazingly, the runtime for this film is to the minute the same exact runtime as the first, at an hour and 18 minutes. And they do so much to flesh out characters without it hurting the pacing. And this is another example, much like they did in the original film, of really good character development and very good pacing. Well, I think that comes from not being very dialogue heavy in the beginning because it's just Cody interacting with the Eagle and other animals. I I think that even that stuff is, you know, it's not like, Hey Cody, how you doing? It's like, Cody plot point right here. They get right to everything. Like everything that he talks to the animals about is in direct relation to what is happening with the story. There's not a lot of dragging. There's not a lot of, you know, waiting for something to come from that. It's really like, the animals are there to keep constantly keep the plot moving. Right. Like when we do meet our first mouse, that is, well, Cody thinks the mouse is trapped, but yeah. he's part of a bigger trap. And all he's saying is no, no, no. Cody doesn't have like a full blown conversation with him, but it's more about after the mouse says no, it's that visual of Cody falling into the hole. Right. And then we get introduced to American McLeach. Another American living in the outback. Um, I don't care, though, because if they were to remake this live action, I'm just putting this out there now. Tommy Lee Jones, he can learn the accent. <laughs> I I think it was way better that he didn't have the accent because this is where. OK, let's just get right into this. George C. Scott is one of my favorite actors of all time. Right. Uh, now, as a kid, couldn't pick him out from a hole in the wall, but. Uh, right now, like I, I love everything that that guy is in, and I love movies where he is allowed to be as crazy and as ridiculous as possible. I love Doctor Strange, love. I love Exorcist Three, which is underrated. I love uh his version of Christmas Carol, Patton. I love George C. Scott, 
So to be an adult and to appreciate his voice and to hear it coming out of that character, it is great. If he had tried to do an Australian accent, I would have hated this in every sense of the word. Fair enough. But I love the introduction to that character as well because without even knowing anything about him, take a take aside the fact that he set a poacher's trap. As they are panning the woods, all they do is pan a wanted sign. So that's all they have to do. Because remember something, at the end of the day, it's a family film. The target demographic are children. A lot of them can't read, but they know what a wanted sign looks like, and they see his face. So without having to tell you anything, they tell you everything. Oh my gosh. I'm just wondering this now. Is that recycled from Robin Hood? The wanted sign? It might be. Wouldn't Robin Hood have been on the wall? Oh my God! Yeah, the animation. They they could. I'm just, not sure. It, they could have just put his face over the over the picture, and used that same the same background. We are unearthing more than poacher traps right now, aren't we? Dear Lord. <laughs> but I thought it was a good introduction to the character, and he's so like he's like quiet, sadistic in the beginning, and yes. when he puts that rifle down into the hole to pull Cody out. There's just something so unnerved visually of being on the wrong end of a shotgun that is perfectly unnerving. Even as a kid, the visual of him using the gun to lift him out of the hole, as a kid, I was like, this is this is wrong, right? Like, that's not what guns are used for. But it's so smart. I mean, this is what we've been talking about, right? Is how even though Cody can talk to the animals, they're using so many visuals to tell this story. And that was such a smart way to do it. I mean, you don't see a lot of guns in Disney films to begin with. So I think that's jarring. But to see it obviously pointed at a child is horrible. And at the same time, he thinks that he's doing the right thing because he's helping him. And then in the next instant, he realizes that he's not going to be able to let this kid go or doesn't want to let this kid go. Um, I also want to talk about his sidekick, Joanna, because she is one of my fave things in all of Disney and people are sleeping on Joanna. Joanna the Goanna. I actually, I had to look this up because like, I didn't know what uh, Joanna was actually supposed to be. McLeach constantly calls her a salamander. But it turns out that like there's and there's a lizard in Australia, a goanna, that actually like eats full sized eggs, swallows them whole. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's a real thing. And then I was like, oh my god, that's a real thing. <laughs> and <laughs> they're terrifying. they're pretty small yeah. looking too. Like we had watched a behind the scenes sequence on how they made this film, and they did have one because um, McLeach also calls her a python. With legs. With so legs. I was wondering like what the actual lineage is. Um, but they are like pretty tiny. I, like I don't think it's bigger than like a chameleon. And they're eating a full size egg. That's that's nuts. You know, impressive. I don't I didn't mention her a lot in the plot summary because I mean, you, you can kind of get away without mentioning her a lot in the plot summary because she doesn't really do a ton to push the story forward, but I think she is outstanding comic relief. Yes. She's a good foil to McLeach. Yes. I think this movie has a lot of comic relief, and it's not very funny, but everything with Joanna 
is funny. I think that the expressions and the thing, along with this, again, being like one of the only two animals in the movie that does not speak. Right. Right. Other than other than the other than Marahute. I I think like you get a lot of personality, Alphaber. And like just just the scene where McLeach is trying to figure out what he's going to do and he's trying to make eggs. And Joanna is constantly stealing them from the pit. That is a full on Marx Brothers skit. Yes. Just watching that happen. And I remember like, even as a kid, I was like, that's funny. Like, that's really, really funny. And nowadays I'm like, that's funny. That's really, really funny. Just in a different, lot slightly deeper voice. (laughs) That, no, that is one of the best sight gags in this whole film. So now I feel like we've been in the outback for a long time. We're talking about this for a long time. And now this is the actual kidnapping mm-hmm. when we check back in with Bernard and Bianca. Yeah. So we now travel, instead of using messages in a bottle that inexplicitly get from the bayou to New York via Miami and the Gulf Stream, you're now using email to communicate with the Rescue Aid Society. Oh, they're not just using email. They're using military communications. This is... One of the things that actually like terrified me a bit when I was watching this <laughs> was how easy it was for mice to hack a military headquarters in Hawaii to spread messages out. It I took three being... telegram relays and then they hacked a computer. I think they're being resourceful. They're using a crashed plane to communicate. I actually love this sequence and I kind of wish this this kind of piggybacks on what I was saying earlier I kind of wish that they had introduced this network of the rescue aid society a little bit earlier on because we've established it so well in the first one you know and they tie up the first one with all of these mice watching Penny get adopted so I kind of feel like the idea was to turn that on its head and show what actually happens now when they're leaving the country and how the rest of the rescue aid society operates outside of the U.S., and I feel like this was sort of a missed opportunity not to establish that up front. I think the big missed opportunity here, because I'm glad you bring Penny up just now, is we talked about Penny last week. She is such a lovable character, and I like Cody a lot. I really like Cody a lot. But, and this is going to sound kind of dumb, other than being kidnapped, there's not enough there to feel bad for him. In Penny's case... You feel so awful for her because any kid that's kidnapped, it's heartbreaking. But it's made worse with Penny because she ran away. She got manipulated. All of this because she get, she kept getting skipped at adoption day. As much as I like Cody in this film, I don't love Cody the way I loved Penny. There is definitely... I, I, I'll say this. I think that when you compare the two films, there is... I don't even want to say a little. I think there's a lot less heart in this film than there was in the original. I think there's a few reasons for that that I think we're also going to flesh out as we kind of talk through this. I'm going to disagree, actually, because I think there's a lot of similarities between Penny and Cody. Penny is trying to escape her situation. She's just as much of a go-getter as he is helping the animals. Um, I think they're equally as lovable. I just think that we're more emotionally invested in Penny because 
it was so sad and so triggering. But if you put them up against each other, okay, she's an orphan, but Cody doesn't have a father. And who you really feel bad for to me is his mom, because now she thinks her son is dead too. So that's, that's two very big losses for her. So I, I think that they were going for just as much as trying to make the audience sympathetic to a character. It's just done so differently because of the setting and the story that they're telling that you don't realize that it it sort of is the same purpose as far as why Bernard and Bianca are trying to help him. I disagree with both of you. I actually, like, here's the thing. I agree that this film does not have as much heart when it comes to the main characters. I think that Cody can be swapped out. He's like... Like, you don't focus a lot on his current state and his, you know, reactions to the situation other than, well, I got to get out of here and save somebody. Like, he's very single track mind. I would say that the first movie did way better job of making you care about that kid and making you want to see that kid get a happy ending because they had been through so much and they constantly talked about their feelings and they were constantly being reaffirmed. But the first movie only focused on what was going to happen to that kid. And this movie focuses on how this situation affects everybody because there's so many elements to him disappearing that lead to everybody else's path in the movie. The rescuers get called because they're, the kid is being kidnapped. They show the authorities' involvement in trying to find the kid, which, by the way, they give up on very quickly. Yes. Um, they, and they show the mother being told their son got eaten by a crocodile. What the hell? Like, I love how you're laughing as you say this. Because, because nothing in this movie impacted me more than seeing the mother clutch that bag. <laughs> That That shredded bag. That shredded bag. And you know she wasn't going, this was my favorite bag. No, she (laughs) she thinks that her son got killed in the most horrific of ways, and they cannot even find a body. Like, that is terrifying. And that's what I'm saying. You feel worse for the mother in this situation than you do for Cody, because obviously we know Cody is still alive, but... That's where it's the biggest difference between him and Penny is like where it's it's true. We're sad for Penny. We're not sad for Cody, even though it is that same situation that they're both kidnapped. I'm actually very sad for Cody because when he gets home, he's going to get the crap kicked out of him by his parents. It's true. She told him to be home for dinner. She told him to be home for dinner. He was not home for dinner and, in fact, made her worried sick. That, That kid's getting spanked. Also, you said that he packed snacks in the beginning and that he's being all responsible. I I meant to tell you that. I disagree. I don't think that he packed himself snacks. I think he lied. And look at where it got him. <laughs> all right. Let's get into Manhattan now because uh, the transmission, the emails, the hacks, whatever you want to call it, has gotten to the Rescue Aid Society. Okay? Um, yes. The Caps animation here is both outstanding and not so great all at the same time. I think the characters look great. I think the interiors 
when you're in Manhattan look great. But the first pan of the New York skyline, to me, I think the buildings look like they came out of a computer. They don't have an awful lot of depth to them. And this is on the heels of not only the rescuers, but also Oliver and company. When the backgrounds and that hand-drawn animation is just so outstanding and there's so much life and there's so much character and there's so much detail, I feel that you lose that here in the pan of the skyline. I'm wondering if that was done intentionally because you don't want to necessarily make it look better than Australia because that is like your bread and butter here. But at the same time, I'm wondering if it was an accident and they perhaps spent too much time on Australia and it it does sort of feel like New York is an afterthought at this point. I don't think the city was uh, the focus of that. And that's why they really didn't care so much. They just wanted to get some location in there. And then they put a lot more detail into literally everything else. And, you know, even just the scene where they showed like where the rescue aid society meeting was happening, where it was like in like a luggage, like, carriage and stuff like that you saw more detail in that than in any of the buildings they showed in this movie let's talk to i want to ask you guys a question because we're in we're in the meeting now right is the soda cap cannon the soda cap on the back of bernard's seat i'm gonna go yes it was something that stood out like a sore thumb to me uh, I like that we get that confirmation that he is officially in the Rescue Aid Society now, but I saw that and I was like, grape soda. I'm thinking it's meant to be canon because if you look at the time period, I have to imagine that some kid saw this movie, fell in love with it growing up, is now working as an animator at Pixar and wanted to do a little hat tip to their favorite movie. That is my hope, I, at least. I think that makes sense. Also... This movie kind of emphasizes something I've always felt about the Rescue Aid Society. They are a useless organization. <laughs> Here's the thing. They have all the communication aspects of their technology and technology at their disposal. They hold a meeting with every single member. They can't find two of their members and they go into an all out panic. You are the Rescue Aid Society. You are a group of people who should be able to rescue kids. And if you rely on all of your major missions for two specific people, you're failing. You also shouldn't panic over missing persons if you're the Rescue Aid Society. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just and saying. the whole film just collapses. <laughs> it does kind of collapse. They, they stop. They, they make it clear. Every second is valuable. Every moment this kid is missing, something bad could be happening to it. Everybody leave the meeting now and go find Bianca and Bernard. No, and it's so true the way that they're hanging. I mean, this entire organization is resting on Bernard and Bianca's shoulders because, you know, he's standing up in front of the crowd. just like, blah, blah, blah. We, we need our two best mice to go on this journey. Oh, where are they? How, how are they not even at the meeting? I mean, like we know Bernard is obviously trying to do something important, but I feel like this is a major disconnect, though, because I feel like nothing on earth would ever have Bianca missing a meeting. That is true, actually. Like, if, if it was an emergency meeting and they got the delegates from Albania, and they got, <laughs> like, all of these people, how how much do you have to not pay attention to your mail before you realize that you've missed a meeting that you are in the city of? 
It's true. And I that's the other thing I really dislike about this scene is that they did such a good job. We spent a lot of time talking about how much they diversified everything and they really did a great job of representing all of these countries in the rescuers. And now you completely lose that, especially in the scuffle of, you know, where's Ber- Bernard and Bianca? And, and and Bernard and Bianca are basically upstairs. Like the yeah. restaurant that they're in is literally kind of just upstairs. Now, I love the restaurant because it reminds me of Ratatouille. For sure. But <laughs> it, but you don't really get the feeling that they are all that far away because they kind of like walk out of the restaurant, slide down a pipe, and they're in the meeting. Right. Yeah, and that's where I feel like a little world building would have gone a long way just to establish like where all of these mice reside when there's not a meeting and how quickly they're able to wrangle them for a quote-unquote emergency bianca also takes her sweet ass time getting in there very true like when they're when they're on their way there and uh they get into the conversation where bernard thinks that she's saying yes to the proposal even though he hasn't done it yet um she's just kind of sauntering over and just going like oh this is no problem i'll just need some hiking boots oh well and the entire rest of the organization is waiting for them to come back. It's like, dude, run. Like, send a message that you'll say yes without having to go there. Because you know that everybody else is just kind of sitting on their hands going like, well, what else are we going to do here for the next half hour while we wait for this message to get across? This is where the pacing kind of falls apart for me. And I wish that they had done a few more cutbacks to check in with Cody, especially because they do have scenes where it is broken up, where we see McLeach driving him back to his home, evil lair, whatever you want to call it. We see the mom discover that realize that he never came home. Right. If you had just peppered those couple of things into Bernard and Bianca leaving, especially because then this whole sequence, like you said, they slide down from the restaurant. She's like, I need my hiking boots. Then they go and find Wilbur like, and then you get the whole flight sequence too. I think they could have broken that up a lot more just by peppering in uh, Cody, because especially too, we don't know what happened to Cody. He's totally holding his own in this situation. So it would have been nice to be like, okay, he's okay. Let's worry about getting Bernard and Bianca there instead of just focusing so heavily on them for a good 10 minutes before we know what is happening with Cody. I would say though, they, this is, this is to me like the last really major moment that will happen for a very long time in this movie. They, packed a lot of stuff in the first 25 30 minutes and then as soon as they meet wilbur and as soon as they get the flight over that's where the pacing dies a little for me i am so glad that you bring this up is this the thing that was going to end our friendship no no okay unless you say that you hate john candy Okay, we're never going to have that conversation. Everybody knows, and this is something that you will definitely want to write down. Bitches love candy. (laughs) (laughs) All right? (laughs) I said that out loud as I was watching this. (laughs) Oh, it's a a long inside joke. (laughs) Yeah. That started from Wreck-It Ralph. (laughs) So. (laughs) I love that you managed to get that in there, Pat. I, I have to say, John Candy 
had a fantastic weekend the weekend that opened up because he was not only in this movie he was in home alone yeah yeah he was which you know again speaking of accents i love that they got chicago to play new york here yeah they got chicago via toronto to play a new yorker there we go that's, That's right. I forgot that he's uh he's Canadian because he does the Chicago accent so well in uh in Home Alone. Yeah. The Kenosha kickers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John Candy. I miss John Candy. Anyway, John Candy voices Orville's brother Wilbur. Right. Yes. Un- Which... Speaking of right, is a very obvious uh... nod. Is that where you were going? Sorry. Uh, no, but I was just going to say, uh, I also appreciated that they introduced this character the exact same way they introduced uh, Barf in Spaceballs, by just having him rocking out. Just no Bon Jovi here. There's no Bon Jovi here. That's but a out, shame. Rocking out to Bon Jovi. And he has, and I'll, I'll let you say it, he has one of the best lines in this film as they're preparing for takeoff. I'm not going to say it. Pat has to take this one. No, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, as as they're taking off, he says, tie your kangaroos down, sports fans. <laughs> and that is where I went. This is why Pat loves this movie. No, that's one of the reasons. You know that they had to have so many moments where they had to add extra animation to keep up with what John Candy was saying. Absolutely. For sure. Because it doesn't sound like they cut out anything he said. No, and I'm sure that he was going off script quite a bit. The only yes. thing I wish they had addressed in this scene is confirmation of why it is not Wilbur. I mean, okay, I, I think you shoehorned this in so that you could have the nod to the Wright brothers. But I I just wish we had gotten something as simple as a throwaway line where it's like he's on another mission or I don't know. Well, I, I can't assume that he's on another mission with the Rescue Aid Society because clearly Bernard and Bianca are the only ones doing anything. So it's not like they're using Orville to go somewhere. But not um, to mention, he asked if they if, he asked if they were looking to pencil him in for, you know, sometime later on. How many other flights does Orville have? Right. Exactly. Well, they do say that it's under new management, which was Disney's way of avoiding the fact that the voice actor who played Wilbur had since died. So they they didn't want to just do a recast, which is funny because they recasted everybody in every sequel that went straight to VHS, including Robin Williams as the genie in The Return of Jafar. Um, so I guess that was their way of just kind of writing themselves out of a hole gilbert godfrey by the way was the only one who did both the og and the sequel anyway um I believe that that's that's fine I, I knew the actor had passed away but i don't want to assume that like orville passed away you know right. so i just wish that they had given us something but i mean i kind of I, I guess we can assume death because I, I think it's going too far out on a limb to think there's another mission with other mice. Did he have? I children? like to assume. My question. I, I like to... My question. Hang on. Hold on. Did did Will did Orville have children? If he did, he's definitely a goner because it's a Disney film. But that oh. doesn't get confirmed. Oh no. Oh, that is so <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I uh, I was just thinking that maybe uh, he's literally anywhere on the planet because he's a bird. <laughs> Could be that too. They, well, then make well, the joke south for the winter or something. Just give me that. They, they said under they said under new management. I didn't assume 
as a kid or Thursday when I watched this again, <laughs> that it was because Orville had died. I assumed it was because, well, maybe he's just taken over this post. Maybe there's several different posts. They have a new hub going out of Binghamton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Orville went there. But instead, we go Kitty to... Kitty Hawk, say that he went to Kitty... Come on, guys. All I know for certain is that we go to the Outback, and this, I'm so glad... This is how this whole thing started, Pat. Thank you for talking about the fact that this is where the pacing dies. Yeah. Because, to a point you made earlier, this is also an instance where the comic relief really isn't all that funny. And it hurts me to say that, because the comic relief in this case is John Candy. This whole gag with the back injury serves absolutely no purpose in this film. Let's get into this, shall we? Yeah, it it literally does nothing. Even prior to that, the extended landing doesn't do anything. Also, like, Wilbur's a bird. Right. Why does he need a runway to stop flying? He can land on a dime. He says as much. Yeah, that wasn't a dime. That was... That was a building and a bra. Yeah, I will say that that was one of the one of the gags that got me the best in the movie was when he handed the bra to Jake and it just flew him <laughs> across the room. <laughs> <laughs> but once Wilbur gets there, he is completely indisposed because he's got a back injury. Which you know they're already in Australia. You know it, it probably won't take him that much to do anything else. But then we are introduced to what I would argue is the real villain of this movie. (laughs) Uh, The doctor is one of the, and I remember this as a kid thinking that this is one of the scariest animated creatures I've ever seen in my life. Because he has that very, I'm going to make a very, very strange reference here. It's got a very marathon man feel to it. Where it's like you bring this guy to a doctor and he all he does is just torture you. They've got the syringe, but it's more fun if we put it in a double barrel shotgun <laughs> and yes! shoot it at you. Which, by the way, I will say this. As a kid, I didn't know what sedative was. So I had no idea what the hell that was. I thought they were poisoning him. I can it's see green. where you would think like that, poison. though. Yes, and they always have that Disney villain green. It is the same shade as the smoke that shoots up during Be Prepared, the same as the fire behind Maleficent. It is a very specific shade of Disney villain green. The poison from the apple in <laughs> Snow White, there you which, go. by the way, when I was a kid, was re-released, and I watched and ran out of the theater screaming. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> It's it's one of the stories my mother likes to tell all the time, is that when I was a kid, they went to go to the movie theaters to see that movie. The minute the witch showed up on screen, I just got out of my seat and just ran. She was creepy looking. She was very terrifying. I will stand by that. But I say that the mouse is scarier because it's a lot more of a sinister edge to it. <laughs> you mean the epidural shouldn't be a chainsaw? I mean the epidural should not be a chainsaw. I mean... As as funny as it is to look back on a scene like this now and and talk about how they're trying to shoehorn these horror elements into this film, it still has no place here. Like it's it's very out of place. I my my assumption about why you 
love this film is because I know you have an affinity for stories that take place in the outback because we've watched a movie called Wolf Creek. Please don't show oh. that to your children ever. Oh, are we getting into this? Because that's all I was thinking for this. <laughs> we are absolutely getting into it. I'm kind of surprised that it hasn't come up before. Well, um, a lot a lot of the scenes that take place in the outback surrounding McLeach, I was you know drawn to a little bit more as an adult after seeing Wolf Creek because it's now apparent to me that not like as a kid, I was like, well, you know, why is nobody there? Like, why is there all of these things and no other adults in the area? And then I'm like, oh, because it's the outback. Because there are just miles upon miles of places where people routinely disappear. And I'm wondering if that's what the purpose was for these mice. And that's why I bring up Wolf Creek. Like, I know you love that movie and it's hysterical. It's got one of the best horror villains just ever. Um but I was wondering if this was like a 90s trope or or if they were drawing from real life and people disappeared. Like, I don't remember, obviously, like we were four years old at the time. But I'm wondering if there were like a lot of disappearances in the Outback. And that is what they were sort of alluding to here is like this crazy backwoods character kidnapping people. Well, isn't Wolf Creek very, I mean, very loosely based on true events? Wolf Creek was based on an Australian serial killer uh, who actually, I'm looking this up literally as we're speaking, <laughs> he killed a lot of people between 1989 and 1993. Oh my gosh. So we are right in the... <laughs> we might be right on the money here. Is this, is this is all canon? <laughs> is is the, the... Wolf Creek Disney canon? I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to say that the only reason why uh, Mick from Wolf Creek is the villain in those movies is because McLeach died in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about somebody else who I thought could be sort of a villain, but I think they missed the mark a little bit, and that's Jake. When, when we meet Jake for the first time, Immediately, I thought, he's a swindler, and I'm here for it. And then as you see him get played out, and you see... Because he's trying to scare Bernard with all of the... And Bernard says, like, I don't see any of this on the map. And you can tell he's kind of, like, making up some of these names on the fly to scare them. And as he's... No, he's not, actually. Because hmm. when he comes up with the names, the names I wrote down, Nightmare Canyon, Satan's Ridge... <laughs> They show a scene later where McLeach is stabbing a map behind Cody and they are labeled Nightmare Canyon and Satan's Ridge. Yes, I I was going to say that because I didn't think that. Uh, first of all, I don't think Jake is a swindler other than trying to swindle Bianca. I didn't think he was making up those names. I thought he really was like a guide who knew the way and he was being truthful when he gave him the two options of which way do you want them to go and to piggyback on what Pat said, yes, that does confirm that that those are actual places. I just don't know if they're real places in Australia, if they're nicknamed as such, or if they just did that for world building here. Well, I thought when he wrangled the snake and all that, I thought, like, he's not really doing this, right? Like, this, these, like he knows this snake, and he, he, this is all a setup. Right. Because he's trying to impress Bianca. I thought there was a missed opportunity here for him to be a con man. 
I agree. That would have been an interesting subplot. So much more so than the hospital. It would have given them something. I, I didn't write down any notes for Jake because, and this has not changed since when I was younger, he didn't leave much of an impression on me. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you say that because this is like perfect timing, Pat. It's almost like we practiced this. We didn't, but it's almost like we did. My note here that kind of like ruined the movie for me when we watched the second time we are halfway through the film at this point it's called the rescuers down under the film is called the rescuers down under it is a straight sequel to the film the rescuers they feel like secondary characters halfway through this film because I feel like we've spent no time with them. The stuff with the rescuers themselves is probably my least favorite part of this movie. Here's the other thing. Why is Jake not the Australian representative for the Rescue Aid Society? Why don't we see the Aid Society again? We know that they've got this elaborate network of communication. So why is it not like once Bernard and Bianca land in the bayou, they have, you know, they meet the uh, the hillbillies. Right. And they're there if they need them. They call on them when they are needed. So Jake shouldn't have been the forefront or, or the driving force leading us back to McLeach. It should have been, I mean, I would have bought it more if he was a part of the Rescue Aid Society or if they had done something as simple as set up while they were in New York. Okay, when you guys land, you're going to look for Jake and then he's going to help you. Because I also thought that just based on the title, I remember that as a kid thinking that it was going to be like, okay, Bernard and Bianca are going to go to Australia and we're going to see what the Rescue Aid Society does there. I actually just had the greatest image in my head of Bianca and Bernard showing up and there's already a team of rescuers there and they just go like, hey, hey, you can't be here. We're in charge. Bianca and Bianca go like, not anymore. You're not. And then they take over like in an FBI investigation in the movies. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like I feel like. I mean, Australia is pretty damn big. And people probably need rescuing there. Why don't they have a delegate? Exactly. Exactly. And it's not like the film ends with Jake becoming the delegate for Australia. like Which, which would have been a great way of bringing him in. Right. Right. Or if you really wanted to go for comic relief, instead of having this like knowledgeable character that can successfully see them through the outback. Give me like the Australian surfer. That's the delegate and, and Bernard who's already this nervous Nelly to begin with. Now he's got to put all of his faith in somebody who doesn't seem competent enough to lead you on this mission. And then as it turns out, the self there, there's more there than meets the eye and the surfer can prove that, you know, he is the right person for the job and, and successfully carry out the mission. It would have been like a great Jake, foil for them on this yeah, journey. Yeah. I feel like Jake was put in there just so that they had another person with an Australian accent who would follow the main characters. There is a nice uh, kind of arc with them where he teaches them to be more confident and teaches Bernard to like, you know, stand up for himself. But I feel like Bernard needed to come to that himself. Yeah. And I feel, I feel I like he didn't need Jake showing him every aspect of that. 
Right. And I think once Jake sort of realizes that there is a romance between them, I almost think that everything he's doing is to help Bernard man up so that he can propose. Like, it would have been far more interesting if he was a con. It's at this point in the film that now all we the rescuers are in route. That's basically all that's happening with them. And we see that Cody has been locked in a cage with other animals that for some reason McLeach has poached but hasn't killed, but he plans to, but hasn't quite gotten there yet. And this is where I think the three of us, at least you, I think you guys are going to be on one side of the fence and I'm going to be on an unpopular side of the uh, fence. Here we go. Mm -hmm. McLeach is a good villain, but... I think compared to Medusa, he pales in comparison. I think they're both kind of on the same tier in that they are specifically one-track minded uh, to the point where they ignore everything else in their lives. Like They make a big deal in, in the original Rescuers to show how the house is falling to shambles and how like she doesn't care about anybody else because all she's focused on is the diamond. McLeach has a business where he poaches things and he stops paying attention to the animals he's poached because he is going for the eagle. That's a fair point. That's not what I thought you were going to say, Sean. I I thought you were just going to say that you didn't like him as a villain. And yes, that would be grounds for I'm going to New York to go stay with Pat for a while. Um, but Hope you like Robin. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I don't disagree with that because here's the thing. We spent a lot of time last week talking about how Medusa is running a pawn shop in New York and she's got this elaborate organization down in the bayou trying to find this diamond. Um, so clearly she can handle herself. She's handling her business. And then once her henchman fails, she's like, all right, if you want something done, do it yourself. And then she goes to the bayou. With McLeach, where I think he's, I think he's the better villain because he's far more entertaining. We haven't even broken down the other similarities to Milk and to to Mick in Wolf Creek, where he's singing all these little tunes and songs of the outback to himself. Um, he's more entertaining in that regard. But as far as his operation goes, I will agree that he's far too focused on the eagle to worry about anything else. However, we have seen two of his traps get foiled. One, assuming that he caught the eagle in the first place, Cody successfully cut the ropes, freed the eagle, even though we know that McLeach did get the, the father at mm -hmm. one point. Cody foils that trap, and he foils the second one because he ends up in, in the hole, and McLeach thinks he caught something, but he doesn't. Um, so as a villain where he sort of fails for me, I don't believe he's capable of having this many animals captured. If he had one or two of them, I would buy it. And I think that also would have lent more to helping Cody breaking out instead of having this entire menagerie. I feel like there's just too much going on. I would have just bought it more if, uh, if there were less of them because I don't actually believe that he's that strong. I believe he's that strong. I believe he could find a good way to trap. He he trapped an eagle with a rocket launcher. 
I think he has enough at his disposal that like he could trap anything he wanted to. Fair. But I also think he did not have the physical time to do all of this because one of the animals that he poached was the kangaroo that first let Cody know that Marahute was trapped. So unless he was in the process of catching that kangaroo, when he got the alert, that other trap was, was caught. When did he have time to do that? Was that the same kangaroo? I didn't realize I thought it, that. I thought it was the same one. I could be wrong on that, but I, I was pretty sure it was. I thought also, the first one was a female and this was a male, but I could be wrong about that. I, I could I could be wrong about it as well, but I don't know. It was something that kind of stuck out of my mind. But also, uh, I think he's good at stealing stuff, but not good at keeping them. Agreed. I would agree with that. He 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 made a giant cage for for, for a lizard. I'm so glad you bring this up. That's another waste of comic relief for me. I I don't find Frank funny, and I feel like this whole scene collapses because he can fit through the cage. I hate Frank so much. <laughs> like <laughs> I I hated every scene he was in. I found him incredibly annoying. I thought all the other animals in that you know menagerie that you talked about had better personalities and were more fun to listen to, and and they focused so much on him. Yeah, the koala to me was a scene stealer. I koala wanted more was time my favorite. With him, for sure. Yeah. He seemed less upset that he was going to be dead and more upset that he was going to be a purse when he was dead. Like it doesn't he, you're dead. It doesn't matter what you are. But he was he, yeah. he almost seemed like I'm okay if I die, just don't make me a purse. Yeah. And it's going to be a small damn purse. I'm sorry. Like you could maybe not- turn him into like a money clip and not much else. Yeah, I, I don't think you're even getting a clutch out of that guy. You're getting like a ring. And that's about it. Yeah. I the whole thing just falls apart. This conversation took a turn. <laughs> I didn't expect it to go here, but it no, took a turn. But I love the koala too because it it is like a really it is a dark scene, even though they are trying to bring the comedy out of Frank. I mean, that, that's the thing. Frank just falls flat, right? But yeah. it is sort of that dark humor because the koala no longer even cares the peril that they're in, that they are going to be killed. He cares more about Frank's ineptitude to get them out of the situation. No. He's just resigned to the fact that they're all going to be killed because he's like, well, if we're hanging our hat on Frank, we're not going to make it. And not even he's trying so- to do anything as himself. He's so defeated. Yes. One of my favorite lines in the movie is as soon as Frank gets out of the cage and he just goes double or nothing, he gets caught again in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like that is really great. That was great for me. All right. So where I think McLeach does succeed as a villain is now he lets Cody out because he realizes after the, uh, after the sight gag that you talked about earlier with the eggs, he realizes that the way through Cody is to threaten the eggs. So he releases him. He lies. He says that the eagle's been killed. Somebody else got her. And it's a shame about those eggs because they're not going to survive on its own. He played head games with this kid so that the kid would lead him exactly to where he needed to be. Forget the fact that Cody, for some way or another, has no has no idea that this massive truck is following him in the very, very broad open outback. 
We're, yeah. We'll overlook that. But in terms of a villain, that's a brilliant move. And to me, I, it unravels in one line because he's like, see, Joanna, I passed. I didn't pass the third grade for nothing. To me, that was on some Disney afternoon nonsense. And I'm not knocking the Disney afternoon because I love it. But it was just so elementary for a villain of this stature. I, I, I was going to say that, too. Here, here's the thing. It's not that brilliant a move. He outsmarted a kid. Uh, he knew that there was one thing the kid loved. And it took him a very long time to realize that that's one thing that it is. He's not smart. He's not a smart person. But he even says, he's like, hey, I didn't make it all the way through third grade for nothing. All right. Well, he acknowledges, like, I'm, I'm not the sharpest crayon in the box. But you know what? I'm going to catch that eagle. And to his credit, he does. Yeah, he does. True later on in that scene because now the rescuers and Jake have arrived. They've hitched a ride on this truck. They see all of this go down. Bianca and Jake get separated from Bernard. Um, and now it kind of becomes Bernard's movie. So good. Yeah. Good. Three quarters of the way through it now becomes a film about the rescuers or at least about one of them. Um, It, it It becomes a film about, you know, one rescuer who admittedly doesn't do much except catch up to the other rescuers. Like, honestly, it's at this point that it's like, you could have just made a movie called Bernard's Outback Adventure because that's basically what this becomes for 15 minutes of an hour and 18. No. And that's really bothersome because I had said last week that, Bianca has such an adventurous spirit and she's clearly fine to hold her own, but they sort of squandered that in the first one. And now you've completely annihilated any kind of strong female character that you had in her. She doesn't do anything like at all. She convinces Bernard to go on the mission. She seems to have a positive attitude through most things. She weathers the storm, but she doesn't actively do anything. Right. And in the first one, she was the driving force. It was always, you know, she never cared what danger they were in. It was, we have to save Penny. And that does apply to Cody too, but she says it a lot. You don't see her do it. Yeah. I think the wild boar scene for Bernard is great for Bernard. It's great for the character, but even that seems a little rushed. It could have used a failure. You you needed to build him up to it, not just mm-hmm. I do what Jake told me to do, and oh, it worked. I would have liked it if he had done that, and then they flash cut to him like running across a field, escaping the board. Yeah, like because because it clearly didn't work. Uh, Bernard, his transformation is so sudden because you spend so much of this movie watching him get hurt by literally everything around him. He is a, I was gonna say a human punching bag, but he's a mouse. Uh, He's a Bob Newhart mouse shaped punching bag <laughs> who has he, he's never walked into a room that he hasn't fallen through a table on. He's yeah, he, <laughs> he, he's just like the most pratfally person. And one of the things that I remember very clearly as a kid was him constantly trying to propose to Bianca and it failing. One of the images that stuck out in the back of my head the most in that entire movie was him riding on the back of the snake dejected. Yes. But you go from that to him 
taming a boar with no experience in a matter of like a half hour and nothing building up to it. I don't know. It, it, I, I said it before and I'll just emphasize it again. The stuff with the rescuers themselves in this movie was not very, you know, memorable in the rescuers down under. No. And if that moment where he sort of finds the inner strength to go and, and save Bianca, if that moment is telling Wilbur to sit on the eggs and you didn't need to stand up to Wilbur, that was also yeah. a wasted, wasted opportunity. The fact that Wilbur escapes this hospital nonsense that we didn't need and comes back into play. I had said that last week that they wasted an opportunity to have Orville helping out too. So I'm thinking, okay, great. Now we're going to have uh, the albatross play a bigger role in this one and, and help out with the mission a little bit more. And that still doesn't happen here. I mean, I get that somebody has to watch the eggs. I actually thought that that was a, a really fun sight gag uh, with Joanna where they, uh, they switch it out with the rocks and then she breaks yes. a tooth when she tries to eat them. That's all great. But when you finally get Wilbur back, like this is your moment for them to team up for Wilbur to bring that out of Bernard, like play into the buddy comedy a little bit of it, especially because Wilbur is that funny character. And instead it's like, well, no, somebody has to sit on the eggs. The eggs were fine. Nobody was sitting on them this entire time. Wilbur spent half of the movie getting his back tortured by a crazy doctor for the payoff that he'd be able to fly again. And all he did when he was able to fly again was sit. It's true. It's totally true. All right, let's get to the end of the film here. Um, because the end of the film, kind of abrupt, um, where, you know, Bernard arrives and... He gets the key out of the truck as Cody is being hung over the crocodile pit because, God forbid, McLeach just drop him in. Um, Too simple. Third grade education. Just so that we can get the keys to Bianca and Jake um, and set Marahute free. What works here is that Bernard uses Joanna as a battering ram to not only send herself into the water, but also send McLeach into the water and eventually over the waterfall. I love that Bernard actually tips him in as he is losing his balance. That is something that they always they they never follow through on an animation like they will either regain their own footing and then it's like ah oh, you could have had it no he does it maybe that is the moment for him pat he actively pushes murders a guy <laughs> <laughs> like, is that what we were waiting for this entire time guess him so to kill because <laughs> because that's what he did like there's no way of like getting around that he led to every circumstance leading to him being unbalanced and then shoved them both off a cliff Physically, he's a murderer. Yeah, Bernard so. could not carry <laughs> could not carry the suitcases off of Wilbur killed a guy. <laughs> Think, just put that in perspective. He couldn't carry a suitcase and he killed a guy. By the way, while all this was going on, what was Miss Bianca doing? Saying Bernard'll come. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. The she, damsel she in distress. She was playing the damsel in distress. I was just going to say If it. she what had willed that into existence, then she's the most powerful character in this movie. But if he was going to do it anyway, she didn't do sh- Jack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pat caught himself. Pat caught uh, himself. But you're thinking the same thing we're all thinking. She didn't. Uh, and for such a character that she was so strong in the first film. That's what I'm saying. I mean, here's my thing. I don't know if it's that, you know, Ava Gabor, Bob Newhart. I don't know if it's that their schedules were limited because they're on the tail end of their careers here and they're dialing it back and they're not doing quite as much because they were older when they did the first film and this came 12 years after, 13 years after. I don't know if maybe they didn't really have the time or didn't want to commit the time to it, but it just seems like they are watered down versions of what they were in the first film. And it's like for no reason whatsoever. You could even make the argument that they're trying to introduce Jake because maybe Jake takes over and becomes a Saturday morning cartoon or Jake takes over and becomes a resident. But He's a watered-down version of whatever it is they wanted him to be. He doesn't join the Rescue Aid Society at the end of the film. So there's just there's an awful lot missing here, and there's absolutely no reason for it. They are also so watered down, the proposal doesn't even land. Like, we have spent two films with them. We should be rooting for this to finally happen, especially because Bernard has been foiled every time that he tries. And then that leads him to say before anything else happens. And then he pulls out the ring. It It's not the moment that has been built to. I, I think it really kind of put a damper on that, that he was just kind of like, look, I've had a long ass day. You want to get married? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It even that moment is completely watered down. And then what what kind of bums me out about the ending too, aside from it being rushed, is that I mean, I have no problem ending on Wilbur, but in the first one they made such a big deal of making sure that we knew Penny was safe and that she got adopted. Where's the check-in with Cody? Where is him reuniting with his mother? You know, I thought Marahute was going to drop them off and then we would see Bernard and Bianca, you know, maybe saying goodbye to Jake and, and going back to the Rescue Aid Society. I don't, I'm not saying that we had to go back to New York, but there, I feel like there were a lot of loose ends we didn't tie up here. Yeah, we never got to see the, the doctor mask get his comeuppance either, but, you know. Also that. He hurt. He hurt his back. Big whoop. All right. Let's talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the new characters here that we were introduced to, starting with Cody, played by Adam Ryan. Cody's More American. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As if we didn't think that by the voice. Cody's good, right? Cody's a good character. I think he's likable. You do feel bad for him. I still don't think he's quite on the same level as Penny, but I think the character works for the film. I think he, I think he's good enough for what we needed here. I think they had the basics for a good character and they really didn't go too far to make him very memorable. They just kind of, you know, they, they gave him a lot of, you know, unique personality traits, but they didn't really make those traits work for him in the end. Like all he really did was, you know, he tried to free a couple animals failed. Uh, 
tried to free one animal at the end, which is the eagle, needed help. And then just kind of wrote out the rest of the movie trying to help and failing. Uh, yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, I definitely think he's I think he's as endearing as Penny without being as sad because she cry in almost every scene that she's in. She cries, which is juxtaposed against her trying to escape and always trying to outsmart the villain. Like, and and that's the biggest difference is that she's very proactive about it. Whereas Cody, in the beginning, they set him up as being. I think he does have as much heart because he is trying to help the animals, no questions asked, but like it would have served them well to show how he got involved in this. Like we see Penny's, we, we see Penny's involvement with the rescuers play out before our eyes. It would have helped with a little bit more setup. Um, I I think the visuals make him a strong character because instead of talking through things, Cody's a lot more, active but it did sort of squander the character having him just dangling from a rope at the end I mean I know you have to put him in peril but at the same time Penny got to do so much more to get herself out of the situation and he didn't George C. Scott plays McLeach and George C. Scott obviously is a Hollywood legend I think this is a good villain not a great villain I would agree with that I don't think that McLeach is an all-time great villain. I think he appeals to me personally because of the actor playing him, the methods in which he does everything. I think that his presence on screen just dominates every scene that he's in. Uh, his his dialogue and his actions and his mannerisms make him memorable. He doesn't accomplish much, though. The point of a good villain is they need to accomplish something. Even the stuff that he says that he did, he killed like one of the most rare animals on the planet. He still lives in a cave and is eating food by, you know, you know by Bunsen burner light. Like he should have something to show for himself as a villain. And he really doesn't. Also, I made it clear that I love George C. Scott. George C. Scott has two voices that he does in every film he's in. Slow and somewhat menacing and loud and aggressive and screechy. He does it as Scrooge. He does it as the police inspector in Exorcist 3. He does it as Patton. He does it here. There is only two moods, and they are just low and contemplative and loud and screaming. And and that kind of plays into where I was going to go with this. He's great in theory. He's got all of the blueprints for an amazing villain, but I wish we would have seen him become more unhinged. He's certainly menacing, but I, I wish we could have seen like a little bit of that Jafar or Scar panache peppered in. And I think that's what would have put him over the top instead of this. This is why I went through third grade or being outsmarted by Joanna in the egg scene. I wish we would have seen a little bit more maybe in his lair, like maybe he's got hunting trophies like Gaston has or something. Show us a payoff for for all of this effort that he's putting out. Um, And like I said, instead, we we get more animals trapped than I think he deserves, I want to say. Like, not that I want to see him killing animals, but it's that's also part of the problem is that he doesn't have these 
hunting trophies. I'm actually going to defend that, actually. I'm backtracking on my own stuff here, I know, but I actually just thought of this right now. Poachers don't keep trophies. They sell them. They sell them. But I feel like for a guy with an operation like this and the way that he is, wouldn't you think he'd want to keep something for himself just to show that he did it? I mean, that that's a villain's ego. You have to have something, right? I think he's spending too much time. You know, he's got to fill up that giant ass truck with all the gas that it needs to do everything. And that's got to cost money and get places in the, in the outback. So I think that's where all of his money's going is just making that and keeping ammo and stuff. But at the same time, yeah, he doesn't really have much to show for him as a villain. Like he, he looks like he wears the same clothes every day. He looks like he uh, doesn't eat well. Yeah. He, he, He could live a little bit more of a villain life. He can enjoy things every now and then. John Candy plays Wilbur, and I think John Candy was very good in this film. I thought he was good comic relief, and I think that they kind of squandered John Candy. I like the performance more than the character. I liked John, I like John Candy and everything, so this is going to be hard, but I feel like maybe they let him run too much without a direction. Wow. I feel like... I feel like there were some scenes where he talked a lot and just was definitely trying to fill time. And I feel like some of it didn't land. And I feel like it was kind of kept in there when it shouldn't have been. I think that's fair. Yeah, for sure. Tristan Rogers plays Jake. Um, I thought Tristan Rogers was fine. I think he did as good he could do with a character that just never really got fleshed out. Yeah, I I agree. Um, if, if they had channeled all of the other comic relief that they tried to do in this film into Jake, I think that would have been more effective. But instead we get a character that's supposed to be, be like an essential part of the plot and he's just not fully developed. This movie took place directly between Crocodile Dundee and Crocodile Dundee 2. And you Ah. can tell they were trying to ride a wave, even down to his outfit, where they were just like, well, people like Australia. I think that's the whole basis for why they made this movie in the first place. But also, I think that they started with a design of a character, threw a voice on it, and didn't really add anything to it. They just kind of let it kind of breathe for itself. And it didn't really leave that much of an impression. I thought he was good for what he needed to do for the story. But like, even the fact like he knew who McLeach was like before they found his hideout, like that should have come up beforehand. He should have had like people he was looking out for and like things like that. Make make him more of an essential character as opposed to just a guy who is there to lead you from one place to the next. Right. Okay, uh, final say on the rescuers down under. Pat, I'll let you answer that question first because I'm interested to hear what you have to say about whether this film holds up for you as an adult the same way it did as a kid. Well, as a kid, I feel kind of the same way that I do now. I love the first half of it. There are parts of it that I find really boring, and there's some stuff that I just flat out don't like. But as a whole, the stuff that is good makes this great. I think that this movie 
is really underrated. I think it is unbelievably uh, inventive in some ways, and it's incredibly uh, entertaining. It, it has it has great voice acting. There's no part in this where I think that the people who are doing the voices do not belong on the characters. It has great uh, interactions between characters when they're given a chance to really interact with each other. It has memorable set design, memorable animation. It's it's just all in all a really good movie. I think that if it had a better structured middle, it would be way, way higher on people's lists. But for me, the stuff that really sticks out really makes this still one of my favorite things ever. I'm glad that I watched it again because I reappreciated the things that I loved about it. I didn't find anything new that I really loved. I found that like there were some things that I caught on a second glance that i was like oh that's kind of interesting but i didn't it didn't make me like the movie anymore or hate it any less so i'm glad that i saw it and i would recommend it to everybody and anybody um i i like last week i keep going back and forth um you know we found so many story errors and we had so many suggestions about what they could have done differently in the rescuers but we said for some reason despite all of that we still really like the film and found it so entertaining and think that it's overlooked and that it deserves a watch um i kind of feel like this is in the same vein but i don't think it has as many legs to stand on as the rescuers does i think this film is more problematic um I I don't have that same attachment to it that Pat does, even though I did see it in theaters because it wasn't one that I rewatched a bunch of times. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm disappointed because it's different now. Um, it just didn't completely win me over in spite of the problems the way that the rescuers did. But I certainly think for the animation alone, I think it is worth a watch. I think it's a good movie. I think it's a good sequel. I don't think it is as good as the rescuers. And I think that part of the reason why this is forgotten, take aside the fact that Disney gave up on it after its first weekend, like we talked about earlier. Think about the movies that had come out before this. Let's go five, six years prior to this film. Think about the movies that are getting released. The Little Mermaid, Oliver and Company, The Great Mouse Detective, The Black Cauldron. The only film that this is better than in all of those, is The Black Cauldron. And it's not because this movie's not good. It's good. It's that those other movies are so much better. And it's because you have more complex stories. You've got better character development. Um, and I think that you've got, all in all, just better villains. McLeach is good, but the villains... He, I mean, think about... Um, you know, think about Ra- what uh, from uh, the Great Mouse Detective uh, Radigan. Think about Radigan for a second, right? You know, think about Sykes from Oliver and Company. Think about Ursula. Unfortunately, this character I think pales in comparison to all of them. It, it, and I think, I think of of all of them, the most underappreciated is Radigan. So I think that the the movie is 
it's it's good, but I think it kind of falls to be a victim of circumstance. I think it fell as a victim of circumstance in the box office going up against Home Alone, and I think it's a victim of circumstance when you compare it to the other films that were coming out leading up to this point. Well, if you think about it, though, it's not just leading up to it. This is after Little Mermaid, and this is a sequel. They did get Glenn Keane to animate uh, Manahute, but this is right before Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. So I'm wondering if all of your strongest story people are on those films. Plus, you have Howard Ashman on those films. You didn't maybe have the strongest story squad on this one. But we want to know what you have to say about the rescuers down under. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Pat, thank you so much for joining us again. Could you throw your social media out there and let the folks know where they can find you? Absolutely. I am on Twitter at Pat's on the air. I am on Instagram at Pat's on the air. I am on TikTok, which is gaining popularity now. I am at Pat Gessner, my name. And uh, if you want to listen to me on the radio, check us out every other Monday night. We are on Overkill Radio, uh, overkillradio.com. You can check us out and we will be doing live shows every two weeks. Thank you again so much for joining us on Monoreal Radio. We have news of the week coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. And listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. So to use the code and see everything that Kelly has to offer and all of her services, it is online at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. So we have, unfortunately, sad news to report this week um, as Pat Carroll, the voice of Ursula, she is a Hollywood legend. She has unfortunately passed away at the age of 95. It happened this past weekend. And I don't know if you saw what Disney did as a tribute to her or not. I didn't. I feel like people were waiting for it and they didn't post anything that day. They didn't post anything that day, but what they did in the parks, she had at one point recorded the audio for the ghost host at the Haunted Mansion, and they used her recording in the stretching room. That is very cool. What a nice tribute. I did see uh, an interview that she did, and uh, she said, you know, it's one of those like morbid interviews now yeah uh she had said you know she hopes that her kids don't mourn her because she was everything but a poor unfortunate soul uh and she loved her career and she lived a good long life so you know it's sad but 
She's someone to be celebrated. For sure. And the thoughts, of course, are with her family. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. Be sure to follow us on all of our social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. We love hearing from you. If you want to drop us a line, you can send us an email, monorealradio at gmail.com. And for links to everything related to the show, it's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week everyone on behalf of monoreal radio we'd like to thank you for joining us we'll see you at the movies the stuff dreams are made of